0: I command you to let loose the last of the Titans. Let loose the Kraken!
1: Welcome to the McQuade Arcade Podcast. I'm Scott, a.k.a. Barney.
0: And I'm Biggs. Clash of the Titans is a classic 1981 fantasy adventure film directed by Desmond Davis and loosely based on the Greek myth of Perseus. It stars Harry Hamlin, Burgess Meredith, Maggie Smith, and Sir Lawrence Olivier. The film features the last and arguably the greatest work of stop-motion visual effects legend, Ray Harryhausen. It was released on June 12, 1981, the same day, in fact, as Raiders of the Lost Ark, but we didn't see this in the theater. This movie holds a very special place in my heart because it was given to my family as a gift. The first movie for our brand new VCR. At the time, movies were extremely expensive to buy. If I recall correctly, this was something like $90 back in 1982, which would be like over $250 today. But it was a princely gift, and we paid it due respect. We watched it so many times that it actually wore out the tape. It was, in fact, the Medusa scene that my brothers like to watch over and over and over. It actually began to warp, and both the sound and the video became corrupted.
1: You're right. We didn't see Clash of the Titans in the theater, but, fun fact, Raiders of the Lost Ark was the very first movie I ever saw in the theater. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of a weird choice for a six-year-old's first movie, what with all the melting Nazi faces and all, but, you know, (laughs) it... uh, It was a different time. I never owned Clash of the Titans. In fact, I don't think I ever even rented it. And yet, it is still one of my most watched movies of all time. Because back in the early days of cable, this was one of those movies, and there were a few of them, that were just on all the time. They made the rounds through all the movie channels for what seems like years. And Clash was sort of always on, always available. So I've seen it dozens of times. We've mentioned a lot of things on the show, movies and games and cartoons that have affected us deeply and influenced us. But this movie's influence goes way beyond the film itself. And it ignited a love of mythology within us that continues to this day. Yes. We loved the story. We loved the characters and we wanted more. So we decided to dive into the source material. And that led to the discovery of one of the most important books of our lives. One day at school, we asked the librarian for Stuff About Greek Mythology, and she handed to us Dallaire's Book of Greek Myths. Now, this book is a true classic. It was originally published in 1962, and it's still in print more than half a century later. We loved it. Between us, between the two of us, we probably checked this thing out, I don't know, a hundred (laughs) times, and whenever we went into the library, if one of us went to check and see, uh, look for the book, and it was out, we knew that the other one of us had it, so we would just go find each other at the little library table and flip through it together. But it was the movie. It was Clash of the Titans that introduced us to mythology. Like you said, it's loosely based on the story of Perseus. And when we read the actual story in the Dallaire's book, we were like, wait, that's not how it happens. <laughs> they definitely changed the story around. As Ray Harryhausen says in his memoir about this movie, The original legend of Perseus is complex and convoluted, so we had to manipulate events, stealing from one legend and putting it in another. Let's do a, a, a brief rundown of the story. Of Clash of the Titans, handsome young Perseus, who was played by People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive, nineteen eighty-seven, Harry Hamlin, <laughs> is the son of a woman named Danae, and the god Zeus, who's played by Sir Lawrence Olivier. He has a son with this mortal woman, which, I mean, he this is like what Zeus was always doing back in these stories, transforming himself into like animals and creatures and going after young women. It's kind of a creep, um, <laughs> it's just sort of his thing. This one might be the weirdest one yet. He transformed, apparently, into a shower of gold. A golden shower, if you will.
0: (laughs) I I never thought of it that way.
1: That's actually how the Dallaire's book puts it. (laughs) Reading that now as an adult, I feel like that turns turns us into a very different story. But anyway, Perseus and his mother, they live together on the island of Seraphos until one day, when Perseus finds himself magically transported to the faraway land of Joppa, he awakens in an old abandoned amphitheater, and that's where he meets Ammon, the playwright, Played beautifully by Burgess Meredith, mm-hmm. who is fantastic in this movie. And he learns that the princess of Joppa, Andromeda, is under a curse and can only marry someone who can correctly answer a riddle. And if you try and you fail, you're burned at the stake. I feel like this is how that show The Bachelorette should work. <laughs> like, if we're going to marry people on a game show, let's, let's make it interesting. I'd totally watch that. Now, Andromeda was supposed to marry Calibus. The once handsome son of the goddess, the sea goddess Thetis, who was played by Maggie Smith. This was actually my first time watching this when I rewatched this for the show, seeing this post-Harry Potter. So I was like, oh my God, it's Professor McGillicuddy, whatever her name was. (laughs) Um, (laughs) She's amazing. She's great in this. So Andromeda was supposed to marry Calibus, but he was a big jerk and did a bunch of stuff that uh, made Zeus mad. So Zeus turned him into a monster abhorrent to human sight as a shameful mark of his vile cruelty Zeus says see it was Thetis who pulled Perseus out of the safe and idyllic place he'd been living with his mom and plopped him down to this dangerous new place to punish him as you know she couldn't really retaliate against Zeus directly so she took it out on his son Zeus is understandably mad and has the gods create magical items to protect Perseus he's like he can't be there uh, unarmed, dressed like Wilma Flintstone. He needs help. <laughs> so he makes... He totally is dressed like Wilma Flintstone for most of the movies. He, he does. At one point, he gets that smart little brown number that looks kind of like overalls. But for the most part, it's it's Wilma Flintstone. So he has the gods craft magical items to help him. A magic helmet that can turn him invisible, which is amazing a sword that can cut through apparently anything, and a golden shield. And Perseus uses his magic helmet to sneak into the palace of Joppa and check out what's going on. And he sees Andromeda, who's sleeping, and he sees her her dream self, her spirit, being carried away by a giant vulture, which, it turns out, has been sent to fetch her by Calibus as part of the whole curse thing. And he's ready the next time it happens because he's found and tamed Pegasus, the last of Zeus's flying horses. One of the things that uh, Calibus did that made Zeus so mad was he killed all of his sacred magical flying horses, uh, all except one, Pegasus. He follows the vulture and he watches as Calibus and his henchmen present Andromeda with the next impossible-to-solve riddle for her next suitor. A new question for a would-be hero, he says. So these, these riddles are being planted in her mind while she sleeps. And as Calibus says, when the time comes, when the next suitor presents himself, you will remember.
0: This is a very bizarre scene, and one of the henchmen is holding up a sign that is painted with red paint, maybe it's blood, and it seems to be written in Greek. And I never knew what this meant. I have to tell you, I didn't really understand this entire scene until, really, we just put this together. Years later, I realized that we could harness the power of the internet to figure out what it actually says. So I think that it says Krikos Kalibos, Krikos' is ring in ancient Greek. So this would be the Ring of Kalibos. Although it seems to be spelled wrong, but I am not a scholar of ancient Greek, so maybe there's some reason or I'm missing something. But that's really what it seems to show. And then it flashes to the ring on his hand. So suddenly we understand where this inspiration for the riddle comes from in this dreamlike realm. In fact, I like this scene so much, and I think that sign is so weird and bizarre that I screenshotted (laughs) it in high resolution and actually had T-shirts made for me and my brothers, which are really bizarre but really cool.
1: I love them. I love those shirts. (laughs) So uh, Perseus is discovered and there's a a big fight scene between him and Calibus in the swamp and then the scene changes to the next day's uh, hey, does anybody want to marry the princess but probably die by fire ceremony? (laughs) Perseus shows up and he asks for the riddle and Andromeda goes into almost like a a trance-like state and presents it to him. In my
0: mind's eyes I see three circles joined in priceless, graceful harmony. Two full as the moon, one hollow as a crown, two from the sea, five fathoms down, one from the earth, deep under the ground, the whole a mark of high renown. Tell me, what can it be? Can we talk about how cool this riddle is? It is so well written. And honestly, this is the first riddle in my conscious memory that I understood. Like once I saw the answer, I was like, oh my gosh, that was really clever because it was obscure, but it actually all made sense. The answer is a ring, two perfect pearls and a circle of gold, the ring of the Lord of the Marsh, the pearl ring of Calabas here on the claw hand of Calabas himself, the ring (laughs) That gasp from the crowd, it's so good.
1: Very dramatic. Instead of just bringing the ring with him and being like, here you go, it's this thing right here. He throws a bloody gross monster hand on the ground with the ring still on it.
0: Perseus finishes this exchange with one of my favorite lines in the movie. I think it's really beautifully written and incredibly poetic.
1: There will be no more bonfires. No more nightmares. Light has conquered darkness. You're free. Perseus, he solves the riddle, and he gets to marry Andromeda, but Thetis isn't having it and tells everyone, in this really cool scene where a statue of her comes to life, they do this amazing job of like projecting Maggie Smith's face onto the head of
0: the statue. Hey, please, let's call her Professor Minerva McGonagall.
1: Right. <laughs> That's what I said earlier. That's exactly what I said. Um, she tells him all that Joppa's going to be destroyed by the Kraken, a giant sea monster that we see at the beginning, beginning of the movie, unless... Andromeda is sacrificed to it, but Perseus ends up using the severed head of Medusa to stop the creature by turning it to stone and saving the day. Now, that's a very abridged version of the story that we love so much, and I think we need to start our discussion of the movie with the amazing artist who brought its world and its creatures to life. As you said, this was the last film, stop-motion animation, pioneer, legend, Ray Harryhausen would work on. And I think it's absolutely some of his best work. This movie is a real special effects time capsule because it was right around this time that movie special effects really started to change in ways that moved away from traditional stop-motion animation. According to Wikipedia, the British Board of Film Classification said, Harryhausen's effects are, were well done and will give entertainment to audiences of all ages but might appear a little old hat to those familiar with Star Wars and Superman. We didn't feel that way at all. I feel like even though we had seen Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back and Superman and Alien, all these new movies that pushed visual effects forward in new and different ways. And while the effects in clash were were technically kind of becoming dated, they gave the movie a a magical quality that other movies we love just didn't have.
0: Absolutely. Just the level of artistry is
1: staggering. Harryhausen himself recognized the fact that the industry was sort of moving on and... As we said, this was his last movie. And in his mem- memoir, he said, The decision to end my career at that point was absolutely right. I was forced to concede that it was time to stand aside for others and their new technology to take over. There was a lot. This, the sheer amount of stop-motion animation in this movie is amazing. There was so much fact, that this is the only film Ray Harryhausen ever did where he used animation assistance. He usually would do it all himself, but he got help on this one. He created Calibus, his giant vulture, Pegasus, the two-headed wolf, Uh, Medusa, some giant scorpions, the Kraken, and of course, one of our absolute favorite things as a kid, Bubo, the mechanical owl. Now at one point, Zeus tells Athena to send Perseus her owl to help him, and she's like, nope, keep him my owl. And she has Hephaestus the blacksmith build a mechanical one to send to Perseus instead. And in an interview, which uh, incidentally you can find on our Facebook page, Ray Harryhausen talked about Bubo, and he said there were actually two models that they used, two different ones. There was the full... You know, there was the one used in stop motion with the full range of motion and articulation. And then there was a motorized one that was used for the scenes where he was being held so that even without stop motion, he could, you know, it wouldn't just be a, a, an inert thing sitting there. It would still move around and could do a little bit of stuff. He also said that they added him to the movie to give it some humor because you could do fun, silly things with this stop motion metal owl that you couldn't do with a real one. Did you ever see from 2010 the, the remake of Clash of the Titans? I did, and I found it
0: really painful. Yeah,
1: it was not so good. There's a scene where, where, what's his name, plays Perseus. I forget his name. He's no Harry Hamlin. I'll tell you that much. That's That's his name, not Harry Hamlin. (laughs) There's a scene, there's like an, like, up until this point, the movie's biggest problem was that it was just boring, and like I didn't, you know, wasn't into it. But then it committed this egregious sin where Perseus comes across Bubo, the mechanical owl, and goes like, what's this piece of junk? And like throws it over his shoulder. I was furious.
0: That is a deep, deep cut. That's an insult.
1: How dare you? <laughs> so then we have Calibus, who is very different than... I was trying to think of another character like this from a, from a movie that, you know, we grew up with and I can't because in the close-up shots, it's an actor in this really great makeup. But in all the scenes with wider shots, this character is full stop motion and... I can't think of another character that goes between live action and stop motion like
0: that. And we actually had a calibus mask. Do you remember this? Oh my this? God, yes. Like a an old-fashioned Halloween yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. pull it over your face. It was absolutely horrifying. The character was frightening. I mean, beautifully oh, yeah. done, but absolutely frightening. Kind of looked like a
1: devil. You yeah. Know? Wow. I forgot about that mask. And then we have the Kraken, of course. The huge, forearmed. He was almost ape-like, right? He had almost an ape kind of face. Definitely one of the most iconic movie monsters from our childhood. Yes. And he looks a little similar, similar to a creature that Harryhausen made for another movie called 20 Million Miles to Earth from 1957. And I don't know if you remember this. He actually shows up, the Kraken shows up in the Lego Batman movie, which is fantastic. The Joker like gets a bunch of movie bad guys together and the Kraken is one of them. <laughs> That's awesome. In the Delaire's Greek myth book that we loved and grew up with, when we were reading the Perseus story and we got to the illustration of the Kraken... It was very different than Harryhausen's interpretation. It um, it looked like a big duty, <laughs> like a big duty with a fa- like a weirdly human face, like human lips and teeth. I remember staring at it as a kid, going like, "Why does it look like Boo?" <laughs> What is this? What's it supposed it's to be? It's very right? it weird. Was very strange. And in the book, I don't think they don't call him the Kraken. They just say the sea monster or the sea serpent. I think they came up with that name, you know, for the creature in the movie. And yeah, it's just a very, very weird interpretation of a sea monster. If I was a teacher and like said like, hey, kids, draw a sea monster. And a kid drew that. I would probably call home just to check and make sure everything was okay at home. <laughs> very weird. <laughs> the poopy sea monster
0: out of a, out of an abundance of caution we're just going to get a sense of little Bobby's home life just make sure everything's okay <laughs> concept of the kraken is really from Scandinavian mythology, right? And it's typically depicted as a giant octopus, but this was very different. And the other thing that they co-opted was the idea of the Stygian witches. And that was another word that I thought was really from mythology, but it's not. I mean, Stygian refers to the river Styx. So it's kind of, again, they kind of pulled some little factors and made pulled and plucked from different areas to make what they wanted, which which I think is kind of cool because it gave it its own unique signature and and fingerprint.
1: We have to talk about Maybe the most, uh, overall the most impressive use of stop motion effects in the whole picture, and that is the Medusa scene. This is one of a, a small handful of movie scenes that really genuinely scared me as a kid. The whole thing has this claustrophobic feeling of dread. You really feel like Perseus and his soldiers are trapped in this temple with Medusa stalking them. Not only was she terrifying, but the prospect of being turned to stone really freaked me out as a kid. And even if you did manage to avoid looking at her, she could just pick you off with her bow and arrow because she was super dangerous with that too. I don't know. Watching this again for the show, I really don't know how they pulled this off. Um, she looks so amazing. And they even got the, the, the lighting right. Right? All the lighting and shadows on her perfectly match the rest of the shadowy environment yes. that they're in.
0: This scene, it feels dark, damp, and as you say, claustrophobic. The lighting is severe with these flickering torches and moving shadows. The sweat beating up on Perseus's face. Medusa herself, she's absolutely frightening, but also simultaneously alluring and kind of sensual. It's a masterpiece of art to pull off this emotional maelstrom. And much of it is done looking through the polished shield as a mirror. The sounds, the sounds of the scene, right? The diegetic sounds, mm. the rattle of her tail, the music. Well, we're going to get to that in a little bit.
1: <laughs> yes. That like rattling noise she makes. <laughs> oh, God. I just I just made the sound myself and it gave me chills. <laughs> I love the effects in this movie they really did have i mean sort of a magical quality to them they clearly look like stop-motion animation right even as kids we recognize that but that's part of what makes them so special i think the guy who reviewed clash of the titans in the new york times put it well he said harry hausen's creatures were quote less convincing than interesting and that's another reason why i think they looked so great is that his designs are all so interesting
0: Let's talk about the technology in this film, the in-universe technology, if you will. It seems like I'm always talking about Arthur C. Clarke's famous quote, Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, unquote. And indeed, we have magic here, real magic. We have magic swords, shields, and helmets. We have, of course, the magnificent Bubo, who is very R2-D2-like, you know, in, in his owl buddiness. And to my young mind, these really were technologies, tools, That helped the hero that were fantastic and powerful and sort of beyond comprehension. Even the head of Medusa, spoiler alert. So if you haven't seen this movie yet, you got to pause right now and watch the whole thing. But we mentioned it, but to see it put to use is actually kind of genius. It is in a way the answer to a riddle within the movie, right? Mm. How do we feel defeat this this titan right which you know presumably the kraken was a one of the old gods one of the titans that they can unleash how do we defeat it and the, the greatest line was when the stygian witches say a titan against a titan right it's that's the it's genius and it, it really it is a riddle that they've solved so the head of medusa in a way is a technology with the power to turn those who gazed into its eyes into stone this is a tool Wielded by our hero. Of course, the helmet was my favorite. What a shame that it was lost in the swamp. Yeah. But to become invisible was, of course, always a dream, second only to flight. And having a robotic pet like Bubo was really interesting. I mean, he's depicted as a true technology, almost a biotechny. You know, this this concept of of a very much a humanoid or or live animal-like robot. Uh, this fueled our lust for Goofy's 80 robots like the Omnibot 2000 and things like that, right? Which kind of seemed like they could be similar but were definitely not the same. In fact, Bubo was instrumental to the hero in the film. He actually played a key role. He grabbed the eye from the Stygian witches. He carried Medusa's head back to Perseus at the very end, right at the, the crescendo of the film here. Uh, and at the very end, he is there. It's so cute. He's standing there with a tiny little crutch <laughs> yeah. a cast on his little leg. You know, the hero's journey was recapitulated
1: by Bubo. The cast of this movie, the casting is really great. Like Perseus really could have been played by any Handsome guy in Hollywood, but Harry Hamlin does a really good job. And when the here's a fun fact, I don't know if you came across this in our research for the show. When the producer Charles H. Schneer was shopping the movie around to various studios, Columbia passed because of the budget, which was fifteen million dollars, uh, a crazy amount of money for this type of movie back then. So they took it to Orion, Orion Pictures, and Orion. They were all in. They're like, "Yes, sounds great." Just one condition. And they had a very specific actor in mind that they insisted would uh, would have to play Perseus for them to bankroll the movie. Do you know who it was? I don't know. I'll give you a... I'm, I, here, I'll, I'm going to perform Perseus's lines <laughs> from the riddle scene as this actor that they wanted. Let's see if you can figure it out. <clears throat> Are you ready? Ready. There'll be no more bonfires. No more nightmares. <laughs> Light has conquered darkness. You're free. I crushed him.
0: <laughs> wow. Um, I can't tell yep.
1: who it could be. <laughs> it is.
0: <laughs> Arnold? It could have been Arnold himself. Yeah. I can't And this was a full, fo- I
1: mean, we would see him in a movie kind of like this the next year, I think, right? Conan was 82, I believe. But they were like, yeah, there's, there's like a lot of dialogue in this movie. We don't know if he's the right, he, we don't know if he's our <laughs> guy, but Orion, it was a deal breaker for him. They, they totally passed. Wow. They landed on Harry Hamlin because, in Ray Harryhausen's words, Harry had only made one picture but had considerable stage experience. Not only was it felt that he could be able to handle the role and the effects, but he also looked the part. It's cool that he was a stage actor. I feel you you definitely get that sense in this movie, right, in, in his delivery, and I think he fits right in because of it. Of course, the, the, the you know, the big one here, the heavy hitter, is Laurence Olivier. Is Zeus, Laurence Olivier, got paid for that one week of work which now is the equivalent of almost three quarters of a million dollars. And as we said, we have Maggie Smith, who, it's funny, she's not in, you know, the Perseus story at all, but she really is like the main antagonist of this film. She was married to um, Beverly Cross, the guy who wrote the movie at the time. They stacked this cast with very well-respected English actors, but the studio didn't want people to think it was was a, a British film, so they were sure to cast an American as Ammon, and Burgess Meredith was the perfect choice for this, this role. He steals the show. He's a great character, and he's so different than the character Burgess Meredith is probably most known for, Mickey from the Rocky movies, right? Who's very gruff and cantankerous, while Ammon is very warm and kind. He's got amazing range as an actor. And of course, uh, he was the Penguin in the old Batman series, and he's fantastic in this.
0: Yes, basically every single line uttered by Burgess Meredith is solid gold. I could listen to it in the background all day, and sometimes I do, frankly.
1: A sword, eh? Yes. But this is no ordinary sword. Well, it's a strange metal. It's neither brass nor iron. It's it's like no metal that I have ever seen. (laughs) By the gods. There's a shield. And over there's a helmet. I was right to say by the gods. Who else could make a sword that slices through solid marble without leaving the slightest blemish on the blade?
0: Let's talk about the music. This is an amazing, underrated score. I actually listened to a podcast called The Ray Harryhausen Podcast, hashtag podcast inception here. And they retold the story of the score for this film. John Barry, who's famous for the James Bond theme, but also for lots of other music in the James Bond series, and also famous for Out of Africa, Dances with Wolves, and Bruce Lee's 1978 classic, Game of Death, was originally tapped to do this score, and actually made a demo tape with a bunch of songs. They play these songs in this episode of the podcast, and it's actually pretty neat. They're okay. They sound kind of dark and ponderous, kind of subdued. And actually it felt a little bit like a daytime TV drama. it's It's kind of weird, though I can see, you know these are not finished, so it's not really fair to judge the artist's work. These are just demonstration and getting a little sense of the melodies. But Desmond Davis, the director, must have felt similarly because they actually canned Barry and supposedly talked to John Williams, who we know and love, who then recommended Lawrence Rosenthal. And what a recommendation that was. So Rosenthal produced this incredible score. It is classical, but it's very distinctive. It has all these wonderful leitmotifs. So it's very similar, I think, to John Williams' style. It's lively, bright, memorable. It's inspiring, It actually has a huge range as well, which is what I love. There's all these weird, unique instruments. And then even the voice of Bubo, the owl, was one of the amazingly talented musicians who actually brought an ocarina just for this purpose. They actually asked him, can you make a sound like an owl? And he brought out this little ocarina, and he did these little tones.
1: His name is Bubo. He can lead us to the shrine.
0: Movie Music UK has some beautiful and insightful words about the soundtrack that I can't resist quoting here. Let's start with their wrap up. Quote, this 1981 score is really a throwback in that it is clearly written with a golden age sensibility. And I must say that I believe this effort constitutes the apogee of Rosenthal's career. He succeeds on all counts in providing a score that will not only stand the test of time, but also bring joy to future generations of film score lovers. He provides a multiplicity of timeless and beautiful themes, which he combines and contrasts with sublime artistry. Unquote. Wow. Oh, right. I mean, that's the highest praise. I mean, how beautifully written. Yeah. Okay. Then they go on to describe a couple of their favorite pieces. Invisible highlights Perseus exploring his new weaponry. The cue opens mystically with harp plucked over a prolonged violin chord as Perseus tries out his new sword and shield. We segue into Joppa with a change in tempo ushered in by tambourine, woodwinds, percussion, and other ethnic accents, which signal a scene shift to this exotic city of the Levant. Unquote. They continue a little bit further down. The Lord of the Marsh is an extraordinary passage for me and a score highlight. The cue opens darkly with two orchestral chords and harp accents that introduce the tragic Calabos theme. His theme is dark and pathetic, carried in the low register, as we see him enraged and nearly driven mad from the fate of his deformity. Plaintive strings take up and emote the man's misery and rage as he recounts his tragic circumstances. And finally... Medusa details the epic battle where Perseus slays the fearful Gorgon. This creepy and suspenseful cue stands in stark contrast to the more lyrical thematic approach used in the rest of the score. Here, Rosenthal chose to score the scene atonally with electronic harpsichord and the orchestra providing odd percussive accents, as well as a slithering and rattling motif to emote Medusa's movement and tail action. He succeeds on all counts, and this terrifying cue is perfectly attenuated to the scene, unquote.
1: That just nails it. It just nails everything uh, amazing about this score and how it ties into all the scenes and how it's such a huge part of the world and the magic of this movie. This is one of my all-time favorite main title themes ever, I think. And hearing that, it's so right. It really does feel like this golden age throwback and the leitmotifs, the little different songs and, and pieces of music for all the different characters. Yeah, speaking of John Williams, it does almost make it Star Wars-like in that way. I want to sort of close out the show by discussing another important part of this movie that we enjoyed so much. Again, another similarity to Star Wars. Um, you know, with Star Wars sort of changed the movie merchandising game forever with arguably the greatest and most extensive toy line ever, right? After that, every movie had to have its own toy line and this was no exception. There was a full range of action figures from Mattel and between the two of us, I'm pretty sure we had the full line of all the guys from this movie.
0: Absolutely. I mean, we, we definitely had that Kraken, which was mm-hmm. gigantic. You know, it was probably a foot and a half tall, hard plastic, beautifully sculpted with the four mobile arms and the tail that swished back and forth. This was an incredible, durable toy. I mean, we had this, right? This was at the bottom of the toy chest for a decade or more. Yeah,
1: years and years. He was amazing. The rest of the toy line, you know, the, the articulation was very limited. Um, They weren't perhaps the the greatest toys in the world, but we enjoyed them. My favorite was the Pegasus toy, the flying horse, of course. But in hindsight, it actually wasn't all that cool because it was pretty hard to recreate the scene where Perseus rides on Pegasus. Because unlike the super cool um, Tauntaun toy from the Empire Strikes Back toy line that had you know, a little trap door in the back of the toy in the animal's back. that You can just jam your Luke Skywalker guy into so he can ride it. And then there were fake legs on the rubber saddle thing. So it looked like he was really riding it. So clever. This was just a plastic horse that you just kind of had to (laughs) lay Perseus on top (laughs) and just make it look like he's laying face down in the back of this flying horse. Um, We were not quite able to relive the magic of the scene. You know what, we didn't care. You could sort
0: of do the side saddle, but right, it didn't matter. Yeah,
1: stick his little legs out and just kind of sit him (laughs) on the side, and we didn't care. We loved this movie so much, and we loved its world and its characters that we wanted to enjoy every bit of it, even with these imperfect toys, because this movie was so incredibly important to us.
0: In The Power of Myth, Joseph Campbell tells us, quote, mythology is not a lie. Mythology is poetry. It is metaphorical. It has been well said that mythology is the penultimate truth, Penultimate because the ultimate cannot be put into words. It is beyond words, Unquote. And that is the draw of the great myths and this wonderful, lively retelling. The struggle, the conflict, the destiny. It inspires us to cast ourselves as heroes in our own story, perhaps less grand, but so much more intimate. And as Perseus said, there will be no more bonfires, no more nightmares. Light has conquered darkness you're free. And on that note, stay limber.
1: For more fun from the 80s and beyond, be sure to follow at McQuaid Arcade on social media and join our mailing list at our website, McQuaidArcade.com, for info on upcoming episodes, live appearances, and more.